for your son. Not just because you saved us from the penalty of our sins, but because of who you are, because of the love you've shown us. I pray that as we consider Paul's words this morning, that that love for you, that appreciation for who you are would grow in us and that would change us, affect how we live, that you would be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please turn to Colossians chapter 3. And while you're doing that, just want to say, I hope that as we've been journeying through Colossians, that your appreciation for who Christ is and his compassion for you has been renewed. Now, I don't know about you, but in the grand scheme of things, I feel pretty insignificant. You know, and yet he who created the universe, think about that, he created the universe and continues to hold it together, saw fit to die for my sins so that I could be reconciled to God. And because of Christ's supremacy as God, his sacrifice on behalf of you and I was totally sufficient, totally sufficient to cover our sins. And he had that in mind from the beginning. Which means it wasn't because of anything that I did or could do. That is or should be an incredibly humbling thought. I was dead, yet I am now alive in and because of Christ. Despite my hatred of God, as evidenced by my sinfulness, he took compassion on me and saved me, even when I didn't recognize my need to be saved. So what am I supposed to do with that? What are we, who love Jesus, supposed to do with that? How then shall we live? Well, Paul started to answer that question in chapter 2. As Jason pointed out last week, our lives should abound in thanksgiving. Okay, but what does that look like practically speaking? Paul begins to address that in detail with today's verses. So please follow along as I read from Colossians chapter 3, the first 11 verses. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge 
after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ. Christ is all and in all. Well, as we've been seeing, Paul packs a lot into his writing. So we have to stop and consider context before even finishing the first sentence as he challenges us with this proposition. If then you have been raised with Christ. See, he spent the first two chapters establishing the preeminence of Christ and warning the church about the dangers of man-made religions. These Jesus plus religions would seek to co-opt the all-sufficient work of Christ to glorify man instead of God. Paul now transitions into how we should respond because we have been made alive in Christ. Paul's answer is simple and general, so much so that he needed to unpack it for the Colossians. His answer is this, seek the things that are above. Now, if you think of how our lives play out day to day, we're largely consumed with material existence. We get up in the morning, we try to make ourselves look less scary to the humans we interact with by showering and dressing, right? My hair is like crazy in the morning, so it's definitely needed. We put food in our bodies so they will have energy to do tasks. We do those tasks which generally support our material existence. Things like laundry and shopping, fixing the house or car, going to a job to pay for the laundry, the shopping, the house or the car, going to school so we can learn enough to get a job to pay for the laundry, shopping, house or car. I mean, how often during those kinds of busy days do we stop to consider he who created the atoms which make up the laundry, the shopping, the house, or the car. See, Paul is saying there's more to existence than these things. It's found in the things of God, the things above. And those things should be our primary focus because Christ has made us alive. Paul further clarifies his statement with this phrase, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If you recall from chapter 2, the Colossians were exposed to many different religions as well as false teachers who were promoting practices that required more than simple faith in Christ alone for salvation. Things like the worship of angels. Now, the worship of angels, right, can, can seem like you're seeking the things above, right? Angels, right? But Paul puts a stop to that line of thinking. You see, where Christ is, the angels worship God. It's the very throne room of God. It's a place of utter holiness where he who deserves worship and glory receives worship and glory. There's no room there for worship of anything else. And if we truly understand, understood who God is and Christ as part of the Godhead is, there'd be no room in our hearts for the worship of anything else. So how do we seek the things that are above? Well, Paul instructs us to set your minds on things that are above, 
not on things that are on the earth. The Greek here is noted as active and imperative. Some translations also interpret it as set your affections on the things that are above. So since we've been raised with Christ, it is imperative, imperative that we make a deliberate effort to focus our mind and our heart on the things of God, on what is important to him, on things that please him. This is what Christ modeled for us. And this is what Paul was attempting to model. Now, this doesn't mean that we ignore the things of the world, but we do need to hold them in their proper place, less important than the one who brought them into being. Paul continues, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now with this statement, Paul makes yet another appeal to the importance of Christ's salvific work and how we should honor it with our lives. See, the Greek here implies death by drowning. Of course, that refers to baptism. Our motivation is to show gratitude and love for Jesus who saved us from spiritual death through his death and resurrection. I want to circle back to our earlier discussion of how our day-to-day lives are basically consumed with the material. Now, in many ways, all those tasks are, of course, about survival, about preserving this physical existence that we know. That instinct is God-given, and we honor God when we honor life. See, we, we derive our pro-life concern for babies from the teachings of Scripture. And Scripture equally calls us to be pro-life in the care for the physical needs of the widow and the orphan, the foreigner, the sick, and the elderly. But the spiritual life we've been born again into through Christ is so much more than the life that we know. It's about glorifying Christ who is God, deserves to be honored and exalted. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I have a little bit of trouble grasping the whole glory thing. It's big and glorious, a little hard to get my my head around. And without getting into a whole other sermon, let's define God's glory. One source put it this way. Glory is a word used in the Bible to describe God's eternal splendor and majesty. Now, Jason, of course, would add a whole bunch of other attributes to that list because it really is endless. But what Paul seems to be saying is that our lives redeemed by and lived to Christ ultimately serve to glorify Christ. Our appearing with him in glory is a testimony to his mercy and loving kindness, which are part of his eternal splendor and majesty. But again, life just isn't about just the physical and material. If we're to set our minds and our affections on the things above because we've been raised with Christ, then how we interact with the physical and material should be different. Paul helps make that clear with these next verses. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, 
evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, those of you who heard Jason's message last week may raise question here. Didn't Paul just say in chapter 2 that we aren't saved by following a strict set of regulations? Isn't he contradicting himself here with what looks like a set of rules to follow? Well, the answer is no, and let me explain why. What Paul was countering in chapter 2, of course, was the danger of Jesus plus. That is, humans opposing additional requirements upon salvation other than faith in Christ alone. Here in chapter 3, Paul is highlighting ungodliness that we need to be actively killing in our hearts and minds. All are forms of idolatry whereby we honor the created above the creator. And we shouldn't be surprised by this list because God highlights these things throughout Scripture as idolatry. Now, next week, Kurt gets to talk about the the good stuff, what, what godly living looks like. So that's something to look forward to. But let me point out something else about the things on this list. They all work against setting your mind and affections on the things above. Let's take a deeper dive into that. Think about sexual immorality. If you're indulging in sex outside of God's design for it, you will likely find your mind overly focused on either your past sexual encounters or your next one. Impurity. Instead of seeing people from a perspective of building them up as image bearers of God, they become sexual objects. Passion. And from the context here, we're talking about lustful passion. See, even if you're not going all the way in a relationship, the emotional rush of your encounters override most everything else. Evil desire. Again, when you hold ill feelings towards someone, or if you're plotting to do something wicked, it soon takes up so much of your thought life. Covetousness, right? How much time do you spend dreaming of and plotting how to get something that you, you don't have and you think you need? See, this putting to death and setting your mind and heart on is an active and ongoing process. That's why scripture tells us in Corinthians, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. See, every sin committed starts with a thought, a temptation. Left unchecked, that thought can grow into actual sin. And those temptations, those earthly things that like to hang around, sometimes they even go dormant for a while, and then they surprise you and try to get back in. Hence the two parts to Paul's admonition, put to death and set your mind and heart on the things above. See, you you actively cooperate with the Holy Spirit in removing those earthly things from your heart. And you actively cooperate with the Holy Spirit in filling your mind and affections with the things of God. So there isn't space for the earthly things when they try to get back in. Let's continue in the passage. On account of these, all those things we were just talking about, 
those evil things. The wrath of God is coming. Now, because God is tremendously patient with us humans, we don't experience His wrath, His justice, immediately. At least not not all the time. And as such, we convince ourselves that He doesn't exist or that we've gotten away with it. In reality, He's showing us His mercy and giving us a chance to repent. But Paul makes it clear that a just God will punish sin. Paul continues, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Now, while we never want to wallow in guilt or shame, we do need to be reminded from time to time that we were once dead men walking. We were once trapped in those sins and doomed to feel the eternal penalty of them. Such introspection should serve to keep us humble and eager to offer the gospel as a cup of water to others trapped as we once were. Paul continues, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now all of these characteristics are typical to one degree or another of our behavior when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. As you may have noticed in your own lives, it's easy for these to still be present in our lives even after we come to faith in Christ. Especially because when others direct these things at us, we tend to react in kind. But these things, of course, also fight against setting our minds and affections on things above. If we're angry with someone, do we not mull over that anger and stoke its fires in our minds? Isn't that why Scripture tells us to do not let the sun go down on your anger? When we're wrathful towards someone, crafting and executing our plans of vengeance against them soon takes up bandwidth that might otherwise be focused on the kingdom. It's the same with malice. We start to pride ourselves on how crafty our evil plans are. Of course, we'd never admit to them as being evil. And those plans get more elaborate as the sins grow. We, we also tend to become desensitized to that sin. Slander, right? Like other negative talk about creatures made in God's image, it becomes more of a default mode of speech the more we engage in it. Obscene talk is similar. It's good for a laugh or a shock reaction, right? But, but that seems to outweigh the fact that it, it degrades people made in God's image. It's a lot to digest there. Paul continues, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Now lying, like many of these other negative characteristics we've been talking about, becomes a habit. 
the bandwidth of your brain starts to get consumed keeping track of which lie you've told which person. And eventually people will catch on and then they won't trust you. That's not a good witness when you're trying to tell them about Jesus. Why would they believe you are telling them the truth about Jesus? Now we're going to put a placeholder in the second half of this verse because we're going to come back to it. But in the meantime, notice that something amazing happens as we put off the old self and put on the new self. Paul says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. As Bill taught us a few weeks ago, Colossae was in what is now Turkey. And that was prayed about this morning, right? So think about that region that just had the earthquake. That's where this was taking place. It was at the crossroads between the world of the West, which at that time was basically Greece and Rome, and that of the East and South, the Egyptians, the Jews, and the Scythians. With that kind of a melting pot, you would expect among others, two kinds of problems. First, the mixing together of various religious beliefs, which is what Paul was addressing in chapter 2. And second, factionalization of groups among ethnic, economic, or other lines, which he is addressing in this verse. Of course, these problems can exist separately or at the same time. But Paul's point is that what unites us all is Christ. Regardless of our background, we're all subject to the same sins. And for all of us, we can only truly live and find forgiveness in Christ. All those other things which vie for our affections, they're going to fade the more we recognize that Christ is all. That's to say, Christ is all that truly matters. Now let's get back to verses 9 and 10. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Now we've been talking about actively engaging our hearts and minds in our daily existence. It harkens back to Paul's admonition to the Philippians to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. See, while the old self died when we were saved and we have been raised to life with Christ, these verses have been showing us that we have to continually be mindful of the old self trying to show itself. Watch for it. Expect it. But more importantly, work to put on Christ. Remember from earlier that Paul encourages us to set our hearts and minds on things that are above. And while Kurt will speak to that more next week, Paul has been showing and telling us how to do that since the beginning of this letter. Consider verse one, or chapter 1, verse 3. We always thank God when we pray for you. Verse 9. We have not ceased to pray for you. Verses 11 and 12. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might 
for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Chapter 2, walk in him, abounding in thanksgiving. And in later verses, chapter 3, verse 15, and be thankful. Chapter 4, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. See, what we see here is that a person with heart and mind actively and regularly engaged in prayer and thanksgiving is one who recognizes their vulnerability to sin, their inability to conquer sin on their own, their need for God's power to help them overcome temptation, their undeserved blessings because of Christ, their lack of Christ-likeness by considering His character, and their transformed heart being conformed to the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit as they engage in prayer and thanksgiving and actively engage their heart and mind in the work of putting on Christ. Paul is thus calling us to live in Christ circumspectly and in prayer. And we see this in other Pauline writings. Think of 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Galatians 6.4 But let each one test his own work. And 1 Thessalonians 5 Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In other words, we aren't to blindly follow a set of rules. We're to prayerfully consider the situations we encounter and our reactions to them in the light of the life we have in, through, and to Christ. Right? We were dead. We're now alive in Christ. That should look different. And it should look increasingly different as those sinful characteristics we read about earlier are replaced with the fruit of the Spirit and those other godly characteristics that we'll hear about next week. And speaking of the Spirit, even our efforts to live to Christ aren't left to us in our own strength. Jesus said in John chapter 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Friends, we need and should seek his help to live unto him. We should do this out of love and gratitude. But he knows that even as believers will struggle with this, will struggle to shake off those worldly characteristics he identified, or will have some success at killing sin, credit ourselves for that success, and thus step, step right back into sin with our pridefulness. So he sent the Holy Spirit to help us. 
That help comes most easily when we consistently and humbly seek it with our hearts and minds engaged in prayer and thanksgiving as we go through each day, both in our prayer closets and in the missionary field outside the closet door. Let's pray. Father God, we long to bring you honor and glory. You, you so deserve it. We long to honor Christ by living as he lived. Thank you for helping us to know what we need to get rid of that doesn't look like Christ. And we'll see next week how to live unto you, what, what a life to Christ looks like. And Lord, we can't do this on our own. <laughs> we fail, I fail so often at that. But we thank you so much for Christ and the forgiveness in the cross. And thank you, Lord, that you've entrusted us with your gospel. That as we live lives that look different, people notice, people wonder, What's, how, why is that person different? Why don't, why don't they have all the anger that I have? It's because of Christ. And we can tell them that. Share the hope that we have in Christ. Help us to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.